Father, as we come to the close of this day, we ask one more time for you to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. We want to be, we want to be so moved by this text that Gabriel has just read to us, Father. And so we're asking for your help to understand the words and to, to be able to, to discern it, its meaning and for it to take us more deeply into our understanding of your Son, Christ. And the, not only the meaning of his life, but the meaning of his life for us. Because we seek to be his disciple. And we want to, to be imitating every part of his life. We want to imitate all of his life. Father, and so we seek to understand him better. So bless us in the, these next moments, Father, as we, we look at these five or six verses and, and help us to, to glean all of the harvest of knowledge and wisdom that are found within them. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you look at the library that I have at my office and the library I have at home, you'll think that I have no discipline whatsoever when it comes to deciding what I read. I read just about everything except maybe those Harlequin romances. Uh, I, I just, I enjoy, I enjoy books on philosophy. I enjoy books on politics. I enjoy books, obviously, on theology. Great novels. You know, there was a, a, a couple of years in there where I was, I was trying to conquer all of the Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, but the reason that I, I read as eclectically as I do is, is that I, I've always appreciated um, hearing a, a truth or truths in a different voice or a different way of, of speaking it or, or stating it or describing it or getting it uh, uh, to be grabbed by my imagination. And, and one of the... the the things that I look for in, in a good book is that that author has a turn of a phrase that can take your breath away. And sometimes that means that it might cause a, a tear or it may stop me to, to read that same page over and over. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, very, very rarely has brought a tear to my eye. But he's taken my breath away in trying to help me to understand in his writings the Christ. And the reason that has become important to me is I, I believe this truth to be true not only for me but for all of us is that when we are dazzled by Christ's supremacy, we will trust his sufficiency. That means all of the questions that we have about whether or not he is sufficient in life are dealt with when we see the scope and the depth and the mountain of greatness that is his. Uh, we watch, um, and I'm not speaking about me personally this time, but we watch a lot of those fixer-upper shows. In fact, I think one of them that gets recorded on my television on a regular basis is the show Fixer-Upper. That's the people from Waco, right? Is that uh, Waco? And one of the reasons I think that Ellen really likes that show is because I very rarely have an answer to a fix-up project in the house. And so Ellen has to go elsewhere to find that kind of information or that kind of, of advice. 
And one of the reasons that she likes that show and other shows like it is it's, it's a show where people have an answer to everything. They have an answer to everything. Well, if you're watching a show like that, having an answer to everything is a pretty good thing. But there are times when people think that they have the answer to everything and it's a little bit annoying at best and sometimes it leads us down a false path at worst. And that's what's happening in Colossae. The, the false teachers that we have been thinking about and studying that were a part of the Colossi body of Christ is, is, is that they are saying that Jesus is a good first step, that Jesus is a good beginning, but if you want to get all the way to God, you're going to have to take some different paths, that He is not good enough to get you all of the way. Jesus, Paul will say, will be our all in all when we know his supremacy. Now what these false teachers try to do, and what they try to do today, is they, they don't deny the Christ, they don't deny that, that he was a great man, that he was a great prophet, that he was a great teacher, that he was a great philosopher, or any of that. What they do deny is that he is king, and the only king. They don't deny the Christ, what they do is dethrone him. And that's one of the, the ways that the Gnostics, who are the sort of the, the, the false teacher du jour in Colossae during this period of time, that's what the Gnostics did. They did not deny that Jesus was good and that Jesus was great, but said that there were points in between Jesus and God that you had to go through to be able to get to God. And this has always been Satan's strategy, diminish Jesus to the point that he is no longer the only mediator between God and man but one of many mediators that get you to God. And that's why there are cults, and that's why there are false religions, and this is why there is a problem in Colossae. The glory of Jesus was being veiled by deception in the eyes of the Christians, the disciples of Jesus in Colossae. Now, a, a modern version of this would be the book, The Da Vinci Code, by Dan Brown, that came out about 2006, 2007, right in there someplace. Jesus, as the incarnate Word of God and the Savior of the world, is dimmed by false information about Him. The premise of the book, in the backstory, is that nobody thought that Jesus was divine, or that He was the Son of God, or that He was God, or that He was fully God, until the Council of Nicaea in the early 4th century, when it was decided by the church to make Jesus divine and authoritative. And on top of that, according to the book, according to the author, Jesus didn't resurrect, nor was He crucified. What happened? He actually got married and had a couple of kids with Mary Magdalene. Well, that's not even historically accurate outside of what the Bible texts say. But before getting back into the text, before Paul addresses specific problems, and that's going to begin in chapter 2 of Colossians, what he's going to do is to give Jesus' resume in our text tonight. You know, one of the things that uh, is, is, is not quite a secret anymore, but one of the things that the U.S. Treasury Department does to help identify counterfeit money is to, to get the, the, the count counterfeit finders, detectors, to study the real $100 bill and $5 bill and $1 bill, to know it intimately and to know it profoundly, to know what it smells like, to know every nook and cranny of every edge, of every point, of every uh, uh, line of ink in that, that $100 bill or that, that American uh, uh, monetary note. 
that way, in knowing it that intimately, what is false in the counterfeit money is easily identified because it does not measure up to the real thing. Now, in a sense, that is what Paul is going to do when he begins to describe Jesus beginning in verse 15. He's going to lay the real Jesus beside what the false teachers are saying about him and point out the inadequacies of their false Gnostic religion. Now, just as a, a side note here, it's interesting to note that what most scholars believe they have in this text is part of an old first century hymn. As an aside, beside that beside, I think it's important to underscore that, that we sing to bring praise to God, right? That's one of the things that we talked about this morning. I, I think it's important to understand that, that when we sing praise to God and the way that we worship God, we are, we are, we are bringing praise to Him. But there's, there's also another reason that we sing. The reason we sing is also to encourage one another and to lift each other up. When people come, and sometimes it's not been that great of a week or work week has not been that wonderful or things are a little messed up at home or the kids are driving you nuts, one of the reasons we sing is to encourage people to get their eyes off of their problems and onto the greatness of Christ in order to encourage them that their problem is not king of the universe. In the third chapter of Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We, we sing the words of these songs. We sing the actual word of God to admonish and to teach each other. And the reason we need to know these songs is not because, you know, they, they all the time make us feel groovy and they make us feel warm, but we need to know these songs because they help us to think rightly about the Christ. And Paul is going to use a song on the supremacy of Jesus to remind that church in, in Colossae the truths about Jesus. He starts by saying he is the image of the invisible God. If you ever wanted to see God in the flesh, it's Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, what's the definition of everything? Everything. <laughs> That's going to become something that we do a lot, I think. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Just think for a moment how amazing that song is. 
It's a song we should be singing. And just a few years prior to this, there is this Jewish son of a carpenter who dies on the cross after performing miracles and healing people and feeding people and teaching people. He is killed on a Roman cross. He was resurrected. And now people all over the known world are singing about it. And there are two incredible claims that Paul is making in this text. The first is that Jesus is 100% unadulterated God. Remember, Jesus was not killed for what he did, but for what he said. Jesus said that he was God. That's one of the things that, that John makes abundantly clear in John chapter 10 Jesus is telling the folk, I and the Father are one. And this really hacked some of the Jews off. And again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which one of these do you stone me? They thought about it for a half second. And they said, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you a mere man, claim to be God. To that Gnostic group, Jesus was just one of many beings between man and God. But the audacious claim of Jesus was that he was God. Not a point between human beings and their salvation and God, but that he was God. And Paul reiterates it. Jesus, born of Mary, is the image of the invisible God. Now something to think about. All through the Bible, God condemns idolatry. There should be no doubt in even the most cursory reading glance through the Bible that one of the biggies that get the people of God and, and human beings in general in trouble is idolatry. But why does the Bible and God through the Bible condemn idolatry? Why does it do that? Well, one of the reasons the humans were told not to make an idol of God is because the idol would always be a reduced and devalued version of God himself. You cannot make an image of God that even comes close to being worthy of God. You know, now that's not true about humans and statues, right? Uh, when we were kind of bouncing around Israel, we got to see a lot of those first century uh, in ancient Middle Eastern Mediterranean world statues. And you know what? I wish I looked as good as those guys do. But that's not possible with God. To build an idol, to make an idol of God, is to make a reduced and devalued version of God. You cannot make an image of God that is worthy of God. But what if God decided to make an earthly image of himself? What would that look like? What if God produced an image of himself? That, my friends, is what Paul is trying to help the Colossians, the, 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 the Colossians to see in Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That if God was going to make an earthly image of himself, it's Jesus. And we're told that all things, and we're told that the Gnostics claimed 
that everyone had a little bit of God in themselves, that that's part of what made the Gnostic religion so enticing, is that it really lifted up human beings and said, you know what? And in fact, to repeat something that Shirley MacLaine said when she wrote um, uh, that book back in the 1970s that sort of introduced and triggered the New Age movement in the United States, one of the things she would say is, the reason that you don't recognize that I'm a God is because you don't recognize that you're a God. That was one of the things that enticed people to really kind of go down that Gnostic trail, even the 1970s version of it. But John says, in John, in John chapter uh, 1, that Jesus is the one and only fully God. And Paul says that Jesus is the exact image of God with the fullness of deity within Him. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Jesus is not a point on the spectrum. Jesus is God. But then not only that, not only is Jesus God, 100% unadulterated God, fully divine, Jesus is also preeminent over all things. There's this phrase that he uses, he's the firstborn over all creation. Uh, just a, a quick word on this. There are religious groups, that uh, one in particular, that will knock on your door and say a lot of good things about Jesus, but they will also say that Jesus was created and there it is in colossians chapter one jesus is the firstborn now firstborn can mean firstborn the firstborn does not always mean birth order it can also mean position psalm 89 verse 27 for instance says i will also appoint him my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth now this psalm is talking about David as king. David, though, was not the firstborn son of Jesse, nor was he even the first king of Israel. David had a lot of brothers that were born before him. He had a lot of older brothers. Saul was king before David was made king. The point that is being made by the psalm has nothing to do with birth order or time, but position. And what's being said in Colossians 1 is that as the firstborn, it is a metaphor for sovereignty and sufficiency. When Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn, it means that he is preeminent. In verses 16 through 20, Paul builds on this concept of Jesus being above all. That there is nothing that is above him. He is the preeminent, he is the sovereign, he is the sufficient one. And one of the things that Paul says about him is that he created everything. All things were made by Jesus, and they were made for Jesus. Every inch of the universe belongs to Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we don't worship nature. We don't worship, uh, we don't worship what it is that has been created, but we worship the one that created that nature. In John chapter 1, verse 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Have you ever thought, why does nature immediately obey the commands of Jesus? You go to Mark chapter 4, he calms the storm. In John chapter 2, he does um, to nature something extraordinary. He turns water into wine. That last week, 
Before he dies, he curses a fig tree, and the fig tree is cursed. Why is it that he's able to calm the storm, he's able to turn the water into wine, he's able to curse a fig tree? They all obey immediately and completely. It's because nature recognizes the Christ as its master. And we do not. I heard a preacher one time say, and I'm still thinking about the scope of the truth of it. He says, why is it that animals in nature, by nature, by instinct, seem to run away from us? And the reason he gives is that those creatures know that we are in a quarrel with their creator. All things are held together by him, Paul says. This is the cohesion principle of the universe, that there is order in the universe rather than chaos because Jesus is holding it together. And when Jesus returns and says to creation to burn, it will burn. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Remember the 1970s Devo song? Some of you are not, weren't even born then, but there was a song that was popular. He's got the whole world in his what? Hands. So Paul says in verse 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And so he is the creator of all things, which makes all things in submission and in subjection to him. When you think about the created order, angels are subject to Jesus. Even the demons in Mark chapter 1 and elsewhere in the gospel, are the demons are in subjection to Jesus. I mean, I don't remember ever a time in any of the gospels where Jesus says to a demon that he needs to leave that human host, and the demon says, you know, I don't really feel like doing that right now. I think I'll stay. Even the church, our church, belongs to Jesus. Jesus owns the church. Death. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Even death is subject to Jesus. Think about John 11. Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus who has been dead and in the tomb, stone for days, he says, Lazarus, come out. If it had not been that specific, Lazarus, everyone would have come out of the tomb. And on the day that Jesus comes back, that is exactly what he is going to say. Come out. Jesus was the first to come back with a resurrected body and will never die again. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come and he ha when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And then 
Paul says in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And that is why we don't have to worry about anything in this life. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a mountainous task to think that, you know, I, I don't have to worry and should not worry about anything ever in this life except how can I serve God more? How can I be more Christ-like? But, but to know that we don't have to worry about anything in this life because He is supreme and in charge and there's nothing that is going to rest from His hands. The control of the universe and the control of our lives is the starting point. And then finally, and this is the, the, the skewer point that Paul is making, you don't, you don't have to go beyond Jesus to get to God because Jesus is the one in whom everyone is reconciled to God. Everything is made right. Everything is put to the right because of what Christ did on the cross. In verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Colossians did not need anything because Jesus had done it all. To reconcile them to God. For them to become a daughter or a son of God. For them to become a child of God. For them to become a recipient of every blessing that is in God. For to, to receive every, every peace, joy, self-control, fruit of the Spirit development in their life because they had been reconciled to God. And Jesus had done it. All things are reconciled because of Jesus. And that brings up one of the things I do believe. I do believe in universal reconciliation. That does not mean that I believe in universal salvation. Big difference between the two. Everyone has the opportunity, has, has reconciliation made available to them through the cross of Jesus. Peace with God is possible because of Jesus and nothing else. But notice that Paul says that Jesus is reconciling all things. Jesus' victory on the cross was a defeat of evil all over. Even creation itself was cursed because of the sin of man. We've talked about that out of Genesis 3. And even creation will benefit from Jesus' victory over sin. To the question whether or not Jesus is enough, the answer Paul would give is form of a question, what more can be done? Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And for the rest of this week, let this passage take your breath away as it helps us to understand the supremacy and the sufficiency and the all-surpassing beauty and greatness and to become become breathless you know let allow these words to take your breath away that this is what god has done in christ for us and what else is there and what else what more can be done for us than what it is that paul has described in colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 and that as we wrap our arms around it and get our mind into it and it begins to fill up our hearts and it warms our soul is what will lead us to praise and praise again.
Shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are some things that we can minister to you about tonight through prayer, study, or whatever, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand up and praise the Supreme One. That's stand and sing. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never.